How can one practice feminist leadership in big, seemingly faceless bureaucracies like the UN? What's it like, at times, to play positional power games for the sake of advancing feminist agendas, even if your own model of leadership, feminist leadership, is critical of this? And can you imagine yourself as a quote-unquote femocrat? Joanne Sandler, longtime consultant on gender and organizational change with Gender at Work, former leader at UN Women and producer of a podcast with the priceless name Two Old Bitches, knows a thing or two about these things. We discuss it all in this podcast episode. Enjoy. Hello, and welcome to NGO Soul and Strategy, the podcast for NGO leaders and managers who look change right in the eye. My name is Tosca Bruno van Vijveken, and I'm the founder and principal consultant at Five Oaks Consulting. I have over three decades of experience helping leaders in civil society manage change, invest in cutting edge leadership development, lead organizational culture change, and strengthen effectiveness. I'm also a thought leader on these issues, including as co-author of the book, Between Power and Irrelevance, The Future of Transnational NGOs, which is read by civil society leaders across the globe. If you are such a leader and want to look change right in the eye, this podcast is for you. Hello, everybody. Good day. This is Tosca at NGO Soul and Strategy. And today we are going to have another episode delving deeper into the topic of feminist leadership. And I'm going to introduce to you in a moment, Joanne Sandler. Um, But before I get there, let me just uh, remind our audience about feminist leadership. Um, Some people would argue that it falls within the broader kind of schools of thinking and models of transformational leadership, which is a school of leadership thinking, which if I really abbreviate it very um, in a nutshell, emphasizes the ability of leaders to motivate their employees to find more intrinsic meaning in their work and leaders who are able to generate a willingness and an energy amongst staff to go over and beyond what the job requires from them. So what is feminist leadership then within that school of transformational leadership? Well, externally, easy to guess, obviously feminist leadership is focused on creating a gender just world. But in this series for my podcast, I want to uh, focus on the internal organizational features and manifestations of, of feminist leadership. So briefly, if I summarize what I understand to be um, what feminist leadership consists of, it is things like a pushback on a more charismatic, hero-based and individualistic leadership model. It emphasizes shared leadership and distributed leadership, distributed throughout the organization. It's definitely more of a post-heroic leadership model, as Joyce, uh, Joyce Fletcher would call it. It perhaps has some overlapping areas with servant leadership, but I'm not too sure about that. So maybe we're going to ask Joanne about that. 
And it's a form of leadership that is very much developmental in terms of being intent on developing people throughout the organization. It has a focus on the personal being also the political as, as comes, of course, from, from feminism and a focus on self-care and staff care. So that gives you a little bit of a sense of what it might be, but really we're going to ask Joanne today how she un understands it. So, um, Joanne, let me introduce you and let me say welcome very much. Thank you so much, Tosca. It's a pleasure to be with you. It is my pleasure. And today is my first time to talk to you. And I've already felt that uh, we had a swell time getting into this episode. Um, so let me introduce you as audience to Joanne Sandler. She is a senior associate at Gender at Work, which is a consulting agency that works with organizations who wish to contribute to gender equality and to advance feminist leadership, which we're going to talk about. She's also an independent consultant, like I am. And she is also the producer of a podcast that is called Two Old Bitches, and that uh, care, uh, captures the experience of women over 50 who reinvent, reimagine, and rebel. How to grow, quote-unquote, old and reclaim your voice and backbone of the bitch you always wanted to be. And I love that title, Joanne. I love it. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, absolutely. Joanne is also the deputy, ex or was the deputy executive director of UN Women, or was that not called Unifem? In the past, yeah, that was called UNIFEM, the UN Development Fund for Women, and we transitioned to UN Women. I was on the transition team. Oh, you were actually. Oh, gosh, that would also be an interesting topic, uh, but for another day. And Joanne was before that also special advisor to the Assistant Secretary General of the UN. And Joanne, as you pointed out in our pre um, pre-chat, you would like to talk today particularly about how feminist leadership shows up or not in multilateral organizations, which I, I, I love as a topic, having worked for a while in both the UN at the country level and in the World Bank at country and headquarters level. I think that's an exquisite um, niche to, for us to, to grapple with. So Joanne, let me start right away. What does feminist leadership mean to you, particularly in, in how it might show up in very large, pretty bureaucratic organizations that consists of people from lots of national cultures? How does it show up in that type of organization? And how do you see it in practice? How does it show up? It's a really complicated and interesting question. And, and the answer or the experience of it, I have to say, is evolutionary, right? So your definition of feminist leadership, I think, was very good. It hit on what I think are key elements of feminist leadership, which really is about inclusion. It's about a different weave of power, a different way of understanding power, a different consciousness and intention around power. Um, and, you know, as you said, the personal is political. And, and this notion that you don't check your emotion and your personal history at the door, you actually bring it into the room with you. Mm. Um, and so the question of how does feminist leadership show up in these? How would I see it? Yeah. Where would if, you see it? Exactly. Yeah. I, you know, I had a really interesting 
example of feminist leadership early on in my time at the UN. I was I, I started working there kind of full time. I'd done a lot of consulting there, but in 1997, and when I got there, I told Nolene Heiser, who was the executive director of UNIFEM at the time, I will only stay for one year. I am not a bureaucrat. I am not staying here. I ended up <laughs> staying for 13 years. Um, <laughs> but 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 the thing is that, and and in those days, and still, you know, I don't know. Tosca, if you've heard the word femocrat. I have not. Tell me about it. So femocrat is, I think it originated in Australia in the Mm. 80s at a time when lots of feminists were coming into the public and civil service. Feminist, a feminist bureaucrat. And and I was doing interviews at one point about um, how feminists change bureaucracies and how do bureaucracies change feminists. Oh, super interesting topic. Super interesting. And and a colleague of mine, a woman named Nasreen Alami, uh, who's Jordanian-Palestinian, said, the, the thing is, bureaucrats are supposed to be neutral. Um, feminists, Democrats are bureaucrats with an agenda. And mm. the agenda is equity mm-hmm. and equality. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that was the actually the joy of working in a place like Unifem. So we were not all feminists, not all identified as feminists, but an aspirational feminist organization within a larger institution that prided itself on its neutrality. Interesting. Uh, Lots of uh, kind of inbuilt tensions. Exactly. Not necessarily in a negative way, but at least certainly present there. Before we go anywhere, I'm going to, in a moment, uh, present you with a tiny bit of of research that I read uh, that I think is interesting in the context that you've just discussed. But before we go there, when you said feminist leadership is about a different way of understanding power, I think... I'm going to have to ask you to unpack that. So, and, you know, uh, Lisa Van Klassen and John Gaventa and others have done a lot of really important work on dissecting the dimensions of power. So yeah. power over, over, power to, power with, power yeah. within, right? All those dimensions of power. And in in large bureaucratic organizations, the most visible manifestation of power is power over. Yes. Um, and you're, you know, as you rise up through the rank, mm. you are increasing power to determine mm. both people's actions, people's priorities, people's destinies at the end of the day. I mean, when I came into the UN system in the early 90s, you yeah. had to have your emails approved before you could send them out. Right. That, those were still the days when in the country offices, when the head of the UN walked in, everybody stood up. And that was only 30 years ago. So very much about positional power and formal authority, et cetera, reigned. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Which of course, feminism is calling for a completely different understanding of power, a, a much more nuanced understanding of power, that we come to spaces with power within, and that of course, power with, collective power, Mm. Uh, shared power, power to the power of purpose is, you know, I don't want to say more important, but a dimension of power that you need to take into account as you think about your own power. And Mm. a lot of the work, I think that um, 
a lot of the work that I've done in the past 10 years, and because we developed a, a course actually for UN women on, on feminist, well, it's called actually transformative leadership for gender equality, which uh. is really about how do you become a feminist leader for gender equality, is a lot of that work is really getting people to engage with their own privilege, their own power from wherever they come, and to think about how they use that to advance gender equality and women's mm. rights, which I think is a key dimension of feminist leadership. Yeah, yeah. So here is, before I go to the next question, here is what I wanted to um, to to kind of refer back for a moment. Um, and I hope I can find it. Now. I remember, so there was a piece of research that my colleagues and I at Syracuse University at the time when I worked here that we looked at that talked about... Um, um, behaviors of, you know, we, we never want to essentialize how women lead and manage in organizations. Exactly. That's very important. Right. Having said there that uh, there is uh, some consistent research findings around how women generally, whether we are socialized into that or whether we are, um, quote unquote, biologically more primed for that, uh, but have more a greater tendency toward collaborative relation, uh, uh, skills, leadership skills, um, um, emotional intelligence skills, etc. Anyway, it said, um, I think it was from a British researcher, Metcalf, and it said that women managers and um, leaders in the UK bureaucracy, so public uh, bureaucracy, indeed showed such greater behaviors and were um, received positive feedback from their colleagues around this up till the time when those women entered into the senior civil service and then their behaviors changed. And I thought that was really interesting. And I wonder if you can comment on that in the context of your observations over many years in, in multilateral organizations. Yeah. I mean, I, my anecdotal empirical evidence yeah. would be yes. And why? Because reward systems are very powerful and the multilateral system as an example is a pay to play system. Money talks, power talks, mm -hmm. presence, personnel. You know, it still is this place where size matters. You know, there used to be these billboards when Godzilla came out, size matters. Yeah. And, and it, is, it is counter, maybe not counterintuitive, but it, it, it contradicts the espoused values of the multilateral system. Mm -hmm. What should matter is your mandate. What should matter is your purpose and the, the connectedness that you have to your constituency. In fact, we saw many times that is not what matters. Um, and so in the multilateral system and in other systems to get ahead, to achieve positions that have more power, more voice, more authority, um, you have to play the game. And women and men. Yes. Uh, and everyone across the gender spectrum, right? understands very quickly what you have to do and so yes as you as you reach those positions of power yeah you learn how to pick your battles you learn how to make your alliances um and you learn you know what you can do and say in different places and you are 
constantly faced, I think, with very difficult trade-offs around that. And that it's those trade-offs that I want to go now, because I, I will tell you, Joanne, my, my impetus for starting this series on feminist leadership in my podcast is that obviously the the model of leadership has had some ascendancy in some uh, uh, development organizations, some particularly larger INGOs, at least the ones that I'm familiar with, such as ActionAid and Oxfam, for instance. And so it's on the rise. That makes it interesting to investigate, not just for its strengths, but also I am a little... Um, I want to make sure that we keep interrogating everything, including when something becomes a little faddish, because Mm -hmm. our sector is quite prone to what academics very fancily call isomimicry. So the the mimicking of other organizations that you see as as more, quote unquote, successful or um, uh, what you want to strive for. And so I, I want to now go into some of these trade-offs with you that you already just, just referenced. So what I wanted to do is pose a couple of scenarios and see how feminist leadership, in your opinion, um, where it shines and how it performs, but also where it runs into maybe some of its limits or trade-offs at least, right? Okay, so let's go there. Um, so at its core, leadership, of course, there are thousands and thousands of definitions on the web about what it is. But one of the important things is particularly uh, when we talk about senior organizational level leadership, we're talking about having to balance competing values and competing interests, right? Um, as part of a whole of organization leadership. What kind of values or interests that actually have worth um, might compete with those that are called for by feminist leadership? And how should leaders resolve that particular tension? You know, it's a, (laughs) that's a really big question. I'm sorry to start with that. Maybe it's an impossible question. Well, I think it's very, it's very, um, related to context. I mean, context, you know, is everything. Mm-hmm. And I, I think about it in, I'd like to give an example. Please. Right. So, because not only did we work, did I work in a space in the UN that was, had feminist aspirations, but we were working on gender equality. That was our mm-hmm. mandate. Mm-hmm. Right? And there are many people in the UN that work on gender equality. And it's always a a kind of internal conundrum when you work on an issue, whether it's gender equality or diversity or um, disability or disabilities, et cetera. When you're in an organization that is hierarchical and you, you are hired to actually work to change something intrinsic about that organization because it is an intrinsically unequal organization, right? Right. Within the UN, there are great inequalities yeah, and and racism and sexism and ableism and ageism. And so you're working in a space where you're actually called upon to give visibility to those inequities and change them, which of course no one really wants you to do. So, so you're almost set up for failure. Um, And so 
you come in contact, or, or I did, and, and now I'm talking about, you know, the 90s, with others in the institution who are also tasked with advancing gender equality, but have a very different understanding of what that requires. Uh. And so just to give you an example, in the 90s, you know, in the, in the 90s, which wasn't that long ago, um, the issue of violence against women in all of its forms particularly in the early 90s, was viewed as not an issue that we discuss in the multilateral system. It was private. It was a private issue. It's something that happens in the domestic sphere, not this public sphere. And the personal was not political. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And then through the early 90s and the world conferences, that changed. And so slowly but surely, we kind of chipped away at that resistance. In the late 90s at UNIFEM, we wanted to hold a big video conference, we didn't even know what a video conference was at that time, on ending violence against women. We wanted the Secretary General to come and we wanted the General Assembly to be the site, et cetera, et cetera. And at that time, others who worked on gender equality in the system tried to stop us from doing that because they said we would embarrass the UN. Now, mm. their value was around the UN and the importance yeah. of multilateralism. Yeah. Our value was around ending violence against women and the human rights of women and girls and that yeah. women's rights were human rights, as they said, in yeah. the Beijing World Conference and the World Conference um, on Human Rights. And we were in an immediate clash with our own peers, some of whom had much greater power than we did, um, <laughs> trying to stop us. And it was really interesting. And we ultimately did hold the video conference in the General Assembly and the Secretary General did come and he said he would stay for 20 minutes, but he stayed for an hour and 40 minutes. Mm. And it was extraordinary. Um, but the way we got to hold that was that as we were negotiating, a woman called me because I was kind of the lead from UNIFEM side. Mm -hmm. A woman called me who was the head of the staff union. Out of the blue, I didn't know who she was. And yeah. she said, I know what you're trying to do and I can help you because staff unions have power. Mm. And I will use our power to make sure that you can hold this in the General Assembly. And she did. She did what she had to do to make that happen. Yeah. And so I, I say that because... I think, you know, feminist leadership appears often in the most unlikely spaces. I didn't mm. know her. I didn't know she was a feminist. I didn't know she was a feminist leader. But it is that very loose network and the power with. With. Right? You're the, right. The, the, the informal networks of feminist leaders within organizations that hold those organizations as dearly and see the value as much as anybody else, but also understand that those organizations have to change. Yes. And so being that internal change agent. Yes, yes. How about another scenario? Crisis leadership, right? Yeah. So in crisis leadership, you will often see that leaders in crisis, depending on their personality, will contract decision-making into a much smaller circle of people, right? Uh, although there are some others who have actually a tendency to go out and consult a hell of a lot of people as they try to figure out what to do. But how well does feminist leadership hold up in crisis situations in, in your experience? I mean, I think what we see right now in, in this pandemic and mm. watching my feminist 
sisters and brothers um, who work in feminist organizations and how they have responded to the pandemic, I think is a testimony to how well it holds up. Because, you know, Tosca, the thing is, you, you know, you wouldn't decide to start being a feminist leader in the middle of a crisis. You no. would have, you would have been working up. And so I think that in organizations where leadership styles and an understanding of how one uses power from a feminist perspective, where that has had a trajectory over time so that there's already a tradition of shared leadership. There's already trust. Mm -hmm. There's already a, a, a way of, um, of, of talking to each other and working together and an understanding of, you know, when someone needs to take individual action Instead of seeing that as sabotage or betrayal, people understand it because you've already built those relationships. Okay. So you're saying as long as the foundations uh, for shared leadership and trust, et cetera, have been built, that will then allow in a crisis situation where leaders, may, uh, leaders in formal positional power may have to say, okay, we now have to make really quick decisions and I cannot consult everybody before we go somewhere um, in terms of action, that will, will pay off. But if that wasn't established ahead of time, then, then there is a bit more of a tension, right? Also, yes, and because there are shared values. So the feminist organizations that I have um, been in touch with during this these last six months, for instance, you know, it's been very impressive the way that leaders, and I'm talking about not just formal executive mm -hmm. director or presidents, but leaders within, whether they're heads of country offices or they're, you know, heads of regional programs, um, immediately stopped and said, okay, what do we need to do to take care of each other mm -hmm. and our partners? You know, how do we build on what we've been doing and shift to the extent that we need to, to make sure that we are going to get through this together. And I've been so impressed. I've been so impressed because there has been so much uncertainty. And I think it is also recognizing that uncertainty, recognizing that your strategic plan, your results framework, your whatever, you know, is not going to get you through this. <laughs> that, mm. is, that is not what we're going to rely on at this moment. So I, I have seen and been really impressed with the way that feminist organizations and feminist leaders have navigated this these last six months. But now I'm going to push you a little bit and say, where have you seen the limitations show up of this particular leadership model? Because I find it hard to believe that, um, to be a little provocative, um, mm -hmm. that any leadership model will always in all scenarios and all circumstances ha only show its 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 strengths there, have you seen limitations show up um that have uh caused you to kind of rejig or nuance the applicability or utility of feminist leadership i i'm going to be a little provocative yeah. here I mean, I don't think you can necessarily pin it on a leadership 
theory, right? I, I think, yes, in the sense that if we look at kind of the, the, the twin awakenings of both the pandemic and what's happened with Black Lives Matter and anti-racism mm -hmm. and feminist actors and feminist activists and advocates turning in on themselves to question how racism lives in our movements and our mm -hmm. organizations. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think that there has been a really important awakening. I think that it has also created a, some paralysis, fear. Has it? Confusion, sure. Because I think, you know, a big mirror <laughs> is being held up to all to all of us who work on social justice mm -hmm. um, from whatever perspective. And I don't, I don't see it as, um, you see, the, the thing about feminist leadership, I think, is that it, is, it, it has to be both a theory and a practice, right? And, and we can have really strong grounding in what feminist leadership is. And I think it is always aspirational. We are always learning. We are always making mistakes. We are mm -hmm. always um, trying to do better. Mm -hmm. So at, in any particular moment, I, I think, for instance, many of the organizations that have experienced disruptions and internal crises because of this um, moment of opportunity to really confront racism, mm -hmm. um, I think that, you know, it has it has generated a conversation about were we really feminist leaders? Were we mm. really walking our talk or did we have really good talk and a very problematic walk? Mm. Mm. Talk to me a little bit more about the fear that you mentioned in, in this setting right now, since we're questioning ourselves as uh, social justice, uh, justice organizations when it comes to racism. Yeah. Well, again, very complex huh? mm -hmm. because it, it goes back to, I think, one of the real values of feminist leadership, which is the requirement to confront your own privilege and power. How are you mm -hmm. using it? And I think, you know, I there's there's a great tape that it's a YouTube that um, that uh, women who have transitioned to men who have who have gone through a gender transition from women to men. And they there's a great, very funny tape on male privilege from the perspective of women who have transitioned. Okay. And and one of the men in that tape says, it's not a problem to have privilege. The challenge is how you use that privilege. And so we all have different kinds of privileges. And I think that that is what is happening now is that we are questioning, have we used our privilege ah, yes. for the right things? Have yes. we used our privilege to create more space, to create more honesty, to create more transparency and opportunity? Mm -hmm. And I think the answer is no, we have not. We have, we not. have not. No, and you and I talked about that before right. uh, we started right our, our, our recording. Maybe one more question before we turn to how people can learn more about you. Um, so you've worked in the multilateral system, as you said, for a long time. 
obviously national cultures influence also what is expected of us as leaders, right? In terms of the leadership behaviors that are expected of us based on our understanding of national culture. And sometimes those expectations can be uh, in tension with the or, with organizational aspired or espoused leadership models, right? Yeah. Such as feminist leadership. What do we do then? Say How does more. that say? Say more. Can you say more yeah, about that? Sure. Question? So, so um, for instance, if we think about, uh, let me let me go to so the the classical kind of private sector born mm-hmm. male. Um, model of hero-based leadership, right? Where the, the, the leader needs to be out in front a lot, needs to at least make the appearance that um, he or she or they n- know what needs to be done, etc. Yeah. There are still many national cultures and uh, across the world that would say that that is how leaders ought to behave, yeah. right? And then you have poster road models and feminist leadership being one of them. So here I, I come from such a national culture and I enter an organization that says our espoused leadership model is feminist leadership and that is post-heroic. But back home, at home, in my community, etc., I am still expected to be that heroic type of leader. How have you seen people struggle, individual leaders struggle with that tension, literally from when they leave their home into the multilateral organization and back at the end of the day? And what what kind of organizational dynamics does that cause? You know, the thing is that in any organization, you are negotiating so many differences. That's just mm-hmm. one of the differences. Mm-hmm. I mean, na- national culture, absolutely. Um, family culture, yeah, you know, gender culture, uh, ethnicity, education, ability. I mean, all of those things, I think, um, play in. And I, I think that the, um, I don't think feminist leadership is saying that people can't lead or can't shine or can't get recognition or can't be the decider. I think that feminist leadership is asking for or 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 it, it really you know asking for you to take leadership around non-discrimination around intersectionality to lead for gender equality to lead for a purpose and so i don't you know the the fact that we talk in feminist leadership about power sharing, about inclusion, et cetera, et cetera, doesn't mean that you can't have a leader. It means that that leader is leading so that, so, so the typical, the typical thing is, you know, yes, I'm the hero. Now we know in multilateral systems, the head of a department, the head of an organization, for the most part, does not write their own speeches, does not write their own articles, Mm -hmm. uh, has a lot of people working to help them with everything. Yeah. And then appears miraculously as the all-knowing whatever speechifier. A feminist leader, yeah, would still appear and would acknowledge the people who wrote the speech, the team that helped them that it's there, about et cetera, we et and not about it's, I. Exactly. Exactly. But it doesn't mean I don't think it should be confused with 
um, not shining, not taking the space, not taking the power, not using the power. A feminist leader uses her or his power mm-hmm. to make things happen so that there is a more inclusive, equal world. But, you know, power is there. It's always there. and it It's always there, used. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's very helpful for me, the way you, you explain that. Okay, so Joanne, to come to an end of our interview here. So if people want to learn more about you and uh, your work, et cetera, where can they find you on the web? Where should they look? There are so many places. I mean, first of all, through Gender at Work. And, okay. and I, I will, we'll of get course, that up. always want to pitch our book, Gender and, at Work. Which... And I, uh, Joanne is now holding it up and I will <laughs> uh, put a reference to it in the show notes. Good, because one of the things I think that Gender at Work, the, the network that I belong to and which um, Aruna Rao and David Kelleher co-founded, is that we, we use a very simple but provocative framework, analytical framework. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it helps you to start, some of the questions you asked, Tosca, are about the deep structures that hold gender inequality and other inequalities in place. And I know yeah. you're very interested in those too. And yeah. so part of the work that we do as, as gender at work, but I think also just as feminists and people with inquiring minds, right? Yeah. Is really try to interrogate what are those deep structures? What are the deep structures that despite the policies you have, despite the commitments that you make, despite your mandate and your exactly. mission, keep sabotaging your best intentions? Yes. And so I think that's, that's something I've dedicated my life to trying to understand and okay. continue, continue yeah. to. Um, so I think through Gender at Work, uh, through one of the things, um, Gender at Work has a podcast also, uh, the Gender at Work right. Club. And we'll put actually, a link to that. Yeah, do that because we're, we're actually going to do um, a, an episode on, I recently wrote an article with Anne-Marie Gutz about whether or not the UN can deliver a feminist future. Mm. And we're going to do a podcast on that. So I'd love for your listeners to okay, we can also join the debate. Yes, yes, very. We can definitely link to that. Well, thank you so much, Joanne, for all your insight. It was uh, such a uh, lovely and insightful um, conversation. And thank you, listeners. If you found this podcast episode stimulating, there will be more on the topic to come with other um thinkers and doers in this space, such as Lisa Vineklaser, uh, Srilata Badliwala, who is one of the grandmothers, as Joanna said at the beginning of our podcast, of Feminist Leadership and others. Um, I also wanted to just reference the fact that the, uh, the book that I helped co-author called uh, Between Power and Irrelevance, the Future of Transnational NGOs was just published in July and seems to be making the rounds, which we are grateful for. That book does have a chapter on our observations on leadership in the INGO sector, including some significant leadership blind spots as we see it. And that chapter references feminist leadership briefly as well. You can find more information about that book on my website, fiveoaksconsulting.org. So this is Tosca, and I look forward to spending time with you next time on NGO Soul and Strategy.
Thanks for listening to my podcast. If you valued the content, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify so that other leaders of social change organizations can find it too. And if you want to learn more, have a look at my website, fiveoaksconsulting.org, where you will find blog posts, recordings of interviews with me, as well as information about my co-authored book, Between Power and Irrelevance, The Future of Transnational NGOs. If you sign up for my email list, you will receive a free sneak peek at the book. Or feel free to email me at tosca at fiveoaksconsulting.org or contact me through my website and follow me on social media, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Till we talk again at NGO Soul and Strategy, the podcast for NGO leaders and managers who look change right in the eye.